so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Ooh, don't say ooh when you're looking at my face. <laughs> How There's rude. your opening, Mark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How rude. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester and with me... In the all virtual this week, people studio are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. And Brent Leatherwood. Howdy, y'all. We are back. We're back. And, and I should once say, again, <laughs> right. well, once again, because we are virtual, we cannot see Brent's actual face on what is called <laughs> FaceTime. <laughs> it's shoulder time. It's hair time. It's elbow time, but it's never FaceTime. It's uh, podcasting with Papaw, people, and uh, yes, we are just. Exactly. <laughs> That'd be a, hey, that would be a great podcast. That would be a great title, actually. <laughs> oh man! So, well, I'm I'm uh, back in North Carolina with some family. Uh, I almost said celebrating, but celebrating a life and commemorating my grandfather's life. Uh, his funeral is actually going to be tomorrow. So when this airs, I will have you know my family will have uh, been through the funeral, which I'm actually preaching. And just man, it is. Uh, obviously, it's sad, but it's amazing to be with such an incredible family to celebrate such an incredible man. And so that's what's been on my heart all, all week long. Uh, he he passed away early on Tuesday morning. And so that's why I'm here and back in North Carolina. But, you know, Lindsay's back in her normal spot. But Brent never lets us down. He's still in the studio, even though he's, you know, all by his lonesome. So uh, from several different places, we are excited to kick off this podcast. Lindsay, why don't you tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week? Yes, well, Josh, we are so sorry for your loss. We are thankful for the legacy that your grandfather's left behind and thankful for the hope that we have in Christ, that he is happy and healthy now, but it is hard for those of us who are left behind uh, and cannot yet see the whole story played out. So thank you for joining us in the midst of that. And speaking of legacies, I wanted to start this rundown of articles off with our Baptist Heritage series and the legacy of Thomas Helwes. And the title of this article by Alex Ward is What Modern Baptists Can Learn from Thomas Helwes, Religious Liberty, Theological Conviction, and Perseverance. And if you'll remember, our first article in this series was uh, about John Leland, and he had some of the same themes that we could learn from his life. And one of those main themes is religious liberty. Thomas Helwes was um, alive from 1575 to 1616, 
And Alex tells us that he holds the distinction of being the first person to call for universal liberty in English. And he wrote an important work, and he spoke out against King James I and his authority uh, over the church and uh, the lack of universal religious liberty. And he actually uh, was imprisoned and died because of that and because of clinging to his theological convictions there. And Alex reminds us, and he says this, for modern Baptists, Helwes is an exemplar of the tradition's commitment to religious liberty for all, not just Baptists, as well as causing the state to account when it transgresses its authority. So you can see why here at the ERLC as Southern Baptists, we are such proponents of religious liberty for all. It's vital, and we're walking in a long line of forefathers who, who fought for this, who championed this because of theological convictions, and who actually willingly laid down their lives for this. Next up, we have an article by our tech guru, as I decided to call him today. I was going to say I like to call him, but I never call him that, just today. Our tech guru, Jason Thacker, who has been putting out a lot of good work about technology and ethics. And this is titled, How Christians Can Combat the Dangerous Reality of COVID Disinformation. And We all know whether we're on social media or we're in the news, we're watching the news, we're having conversations with our neighbors. In the midst of COVID, there has been so much information. Much of it has been false, and it's also hard to sift through what is real, what is not, what is true, what is not. And it's hard to maintain unity and and friendships and civil uh, discourse in the midst of it. Jason, in this article, defines misinformation and disinformation for us. He says, misinformation broadly refers to the spreading of misleading information, whether it's simply missing context or is blatantly false. And I feel like all of us are probably guilty of this, especially in a Twitter age or a social media age. While disinformation refers to the intentional manipulation and distribution of facts, often for personal, corporate, or state gain. And This is tough in the midst of trying to regulate this because, Jason reminds us, that the line of disinformation and free speech is difficult to identify in our digital age. A lot of this is due in large part to the ambiguities surrounding what actually constitutes truth. And if you pay much attention, you know that people's favorite phrase in our secular age is, my truth. You know, what's your truth? What's my truth? It's slipped into a lot of conversations. But Jason reminds us that we can actually discern what the truth is. And so we can know what is misinformation and disinformation. And the ways he encourages Christians to push back against this is, first, by keeping freedom of speech front and center in these debates. And then second, we've got to begin to seek out information and insights from sources other than social media, which don't know about y'all, but that is a challenge for me. And then finally, we have an article by our staff in the midst of our conversations, especially that we had last week from Josh's article on um, abolitionists within the abortion movement and and incrementalists who— so abolitionists seek to just—they want one fell swoop to wipe out abortion, which we champion getting rid of abortion and saving uh, babies' lives. Incrementalists will enact step-by-step laws— anything that helps save at least one child's life. We're for the complete abolition of abortion, but we'll do that step by step. 
So we thought that this article would be helpful, and it's titled, Do State-Level Anti-Abortion Laws Reduce Abortion Rates? And one of the reasons I felt like this article was helpful is because it goes through and identifies and helps explain what the different types of restrictions are. If you're not in this space a lot, especially with legislation, a lot of this stuff can sound muddied and be confusing. But this is a good layout of those different uh, restrictions. And I thought this was an important piece of information from the article. Since Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, states have enacted 1,313 abortion restrictions, 566 of them since the beginning of 2011. But this year alone, there have been an additional 561 abortion restrictions proposed in state legislatures. Now, looking at these laws' effects on the abortion rate overall is hard to know, like, did this law cause the abortion rates to go down. But as you can see, just by the sheer number of these restrictions, you can imagine there are lives being saved. And these laws are important because even if this, as the article says, even if this leads to only a slight change in the number of abortions, every single life that is spared as a result of these efforts is more than sufficient justification for working to implement them. And finally, this last piece of information I thought you as listeners would find Interesting that the importance of these laws will be made clear when Roe versus Wade is overturned because these types of pro-life restrictions, they lay the groundwork for the types of legislation that will be needed when the Supreme Court puts abortion law back in the hand of state governments. So I'm going to throw this to this article in particular to Brent or Josh uh, to help just explain a little bit more why these state laws are so important. Yeah, this was actually a great article, Lindsay, because some sometimes, particularly from the from the those in the abolitionist camp, and if you're not familiar with that, go go check out uh, the conversation we had in last week's podcast, or you can look at the article uh, that I wrote on uh, all of this, just kind of framing out that discussion. But one of the charges that you'll hear is that these state level laws don't work, and what we show in that article is that they do work. Uh, they serve not only an important moral purpose because that's obviously true, uh, and we do talk about some of the difficulty of trying to quantify exactly how many lives. Uh, these state-level laws uh, have saved, but we do know that they are saving lives, and we also know they're the only kinds of laws uh, that we have been able to pass and push through uh, the legal system in order to throw up roadblocks for people seeking abortions. And in the fight to end abortion, there is nothing more important uh, than saving as many lives as we can. I mean, that is the goal. And so our goal is to end abortion entirely because we want to save every life. Uh, But until we're able to do that, we want to save any life. And so right now, uh, we are using this mechanism through through this kind of incrementalist approach uh, to throw up as many roadblocks as possible to save as many lives as possible. And uh, this article was just taking a look at it, how that works and how successful it has been. Josh, you're absolutely right. And to underscore that and the importance of these laws, right, the group of laws that we have offer a helpful commentary on where a culture is. And in, in some of these states that have taken actions to limit access to abortion or take proactive moves to combat the abortion industry within those states, that's a helpful signifier, I think, and a helpful commentary on on where the culture is in these various states. And that's why it is important for organizations like us at the RLC and and some of our peers in the pro-life movement to continue speaking, not just to pastors and the consciences of Christians in the pews, but also to state leaders to help them understand why it is so vitally important 
to continue passing laws that protect these most vulnerable lives amongst us. And one of the other pieces uh, that you mentioned, Lindsay, was was Jason's piece. And I, I loved how at the end of it, he gave just kind of some practical advice to say, hey, continue seeking out information about COVID, read and, and take in expertise and analysis from a wide variety of sources. And I would just say to, to just kind of supplement that, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call your doctor. Ask what these healthcare professionals are seeing and what they recommend uh, to continue navigating uh, what is still very much a real public health challenge. That's a good encouragement, Brent. I'm sure that our doctors would rather us call them and ask them questions instead of being, as I often dub myself, a WebMD. <laughs> One time I was at the doctor. A WebMD. I was at the doctor, pediatrician actually, and the pediatrician asked me, "Are you a are you a nurse or something?" And uh, I said, "Oh no, I'm just a web MD." He was like, "Oh, he's like, I just didn't want to explain terms to you that you already knew." Uh, but I know that they would love us to do that instead of spread being armchair doctors and spreading information that is unhelpful for the good of our neighbors. So, Baptist heritage, religious liberty, technology ethics and pro-life issues and abortion. These are all samples of things that we are working hard to cover in order to educate and equip the church. I know as listeners, you hear me say that all the time, but that's really what our mission boils down to, educating and equipping the church to be able to live Christianly in response to the cultural, moral, and ethical issues that we face. And there are a plethora of them. So we're thankful to be able to bring resources like this to you. And for now, Brent and Josh, that's your look at what's happening at ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to the culture section for the week. Uh, but before I turn it over to Brent, I just want to say shout out to Alex Worry for giving me all of the Baptist history feels. That was just really, really excellent. We didn't get to comment on that one, but it is super good. And if you don't know the story of Thomas Elwes, that's a thing to go check out. Uh, but Brent, tell us what's been going on in the world of culture. All right, so we begin this week with the various effects the Delta variant of COVID-19 is having on society. So ABC News is where we start. The Delta variant now accounts for 93% of all sequenced cases in the U.S., according to the latest CDC data, which was collected over the last two weeks of July. Delta accounted for just 3% of cases sequenced in late May, showing how quickly it has spread through our nation. And that comes as, according to Axios, we've hit another grim milestone. The number of COVID-19 infections worldwide topped 200 million on Wednesday, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. The milestone highlights the effect of the highly contagious Delta variant. It took about a year for the world to reach 100 million cases, and only six months to double that. Because of all this, New York City and the federal government are taking new actions. According to New York's PIX11 News Channel, New Yorkers will need to show proof of COVID-19 vaccination to enter indoor businesses, such as restaurants, entertainment venues, and gyms, Mayor Bill de Blasio said on Tuesday. To gain entry to these establishments, New Yorkers and visitors to the city will have to either present their paper COVID-19 vaccination card, the state-run Excelsior Pass, or the city's vaccine passport app. 
New York City will be the first big city in the country to implement such a requirement. The policy is similar to mandates issued in France and Italy. And the federal government extended a recently expired moratorium. NBC News reports this. After pressure on the Biden administration from housing advocates and fellow Democrats who had failed to pass legislation to extend the moratorium, the CDC issued a new eviction moratorium for regions of the country with substantial and high transmission of the coronavirus. If counties improve their COVID rates and do not experience substantial and high transmission for 14 days, tenants will no longer be protected by this moratorium. A suit by landlord groups against this latest moratorium called the move unlawful. The order is essentially of the previous moratorium, which has prevented landlords from evicting tenants who aren't paying their rent during the pandemic, the filing in the lawsuit said. So needless to say, uh, there has been a lot of action and movement on the COVID front since we recorded last week. There has been, Brent. And with the rise of the Delta variant, school is about to start here in my county tomorrow, actually, with no masks, uh, or I guess they're optional. And I know there is a big debate has become politicized about masks. I just have a feeling that schools are not going to be in, in a stable session for long. So we'll see. I want kids to be well. But if this variant is as contagious as they say, and like you said, doubled our infections, 100 million to 200 million just in six months, then we'll see what happens. That remains to be seen. The other two stories kind of wade into the political weeds, and I would there are a variety of opinions. I would love to hear just y'all's two-second blip thoughts on these things. So um, New York, the mayor requiring that you have to show proof of the vaccine. I am for the vaccine. I don't know how I feel about things such as vaccine passports or the, the government issuing those uh, for restaurants, et cetera. What say y'all to help us think through this? Look, I'm an American who believes in personal liberty and personal freedom. So, like, I'm not a huge uh, fan of the government trying to coerce people. Having said that, I am very much in favor of individual choice. And since individuals run uh, businesses and corporations, I'm fine with them bringing whatever kind of pressure they want to bear on those who would want to use their services, whether it's a restaurant you want to eat in or a company that you might work for or whatever. Uh, I don't think, you know, especially once the vaccines are, are uh, approved beyond emergency use, but in whatever they're kind of standard approval process would be. Uh, I, I don't have any problem with that being required. And uh, I am deeply concerned about some of the variants. You know, I, I try not to be a, a Corona bro who is somebody who is just always worried about the virus all the time. And I also try not to be somebody who is never worried about the virus. And I try to take it, uh, you know, for several months, we've, we've been seeing nothing but good news. And recently it's been not great news. Uh, and it's starting to affect People who thought that it wasn't going to be an issue for them. I mean, one of one of my close friends uh, from elementary school on is right now really, really struggling with the coronavirus. And this is a guy who has been a tremendous athlete and track star and everything else. And so uh, who is still in great shape. And so, you know, the and he's 33, 34 years old. So. I think it's a serious deal, and and I'm really, you know, I'm really hoping that people will uh, get vaccinated. And honestly, I've seen a lot of encouraging movement from folks who had been vaccine. I would call them skeptics uh, in my circles. I've seen a lot of movement toward getting the vaccine, even in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll pick up, you know, where you kind of were, Josh, with like personal liberty, right? And there's this old conservative adage, which 
is attributed to, I think, several people. Uh, but, you know, it's it's something along the lines of the right to swing your fist ends at my nose, right? And, and so the same could be applied here, uh, especially as it relates to businesses or private entities just trying to protect the, the folks that are within their store or, or, or their area. And so it's, it's a balance, y'all. And I think the, the reality is that the best way to think through this, we're all in this together. And that's the way that we're going to ultimately be by encouraging people to get vaccines, answering questions, not going after folks that have questions as if they are somehow like enemies and not not treating people as less than that that's the important kind of mindset to take in this. Okay, so next, speaking of New York, a scathing report was released about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and this comes to us from CBS News. Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple current and former staffers as well as women who did not work for his administration. The state's attorney general, Letitia James, said Tuesday during a press conference summarizing the findings of an independent investigation. She said the investigation found a hostile and unsafe work environment in which women, including a state trooper assigned to the governor's detail, described inappropriate groping and sexual harassment. The AG reviewed tens of thousands of documents and interviewed 179 witnesses, according to the report. The investigation was civil in nature, but Clark noted Tuesday that state and federal prosecutors are free to review all of the allegations included in the report. Cuomo has been asked to resign by many leaders, including President Joe Biden. He has said he will not do so. Analysts expect impeachment proceedings to begin in Albany, the state capital in New York, as early as this fall. This is a pretty spectacular uh, fall from grace uh, for uh, Governor Cuomo, who, you know, early on in the pandemic was uh, considered by many to be hosting must-watch TV news conferences for the the way that he was trying to to lead in New York. And wow, Didn't what a turn. Didn't he win or was nominated for an Emmy because of that? Really? Oh, I missed that. Does that, that. sound crazy? I, I really think that might be a true story, but if it's not, <laughs> you know, sorry, sorry for the fake news. Yeah. Well, you know, Josh was right about the Emmy. I looked it up and he looked it up too. He received an international Emmy for his, quote, masterful COVID-19 briefings. And the irony of that in my mind is that this probably was what led to the beginning of his downfall as far as being more in the spotlight and then people looking more into him. And it reminds me, well, this is these are grave accusations to be taken seriously and they are terrible and they are uncalled for. And it reminds me that your sin will find you out. <laughs> that whether it's here where you will be judged on earth or whether it you escape earthly judgment, you will not escape the judgment throne of the Lord. And you will be found out and you won't be able to get away with these things. It also reminds me that on both sides of the political aisle, we need to hold people accountable for this kind of behavior. And um, not brush it off because some agenda or some commitment to a, a political ideology. That's a that's a great word, Lindsay, and good reminder. All right, so moving now over to news uh, that's affecting the international scene. So actually, this is breaking just before we went on the air. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that President Biden on Thursday signed an order enabling some Hong Kong residents to remain in the U.S., 
rather than return to the Chinese territory, citing Beijing's crackdown on political freedom there. Hong Kong residents who qualify for the program will be granted a work permit for 18 months and a reprieve from deportation. In the past, U.S. administrations have extended similar actions beyond their initial expiration dates. The White House said it will defer a removal of certain Hong Kong residents in the U.S. to grant them, quote, a temporary safe haven from Chinese repression. You know, for all of us here at the RLC, this is certainly a a very welcome move uh, by the administration. Uh, We would submit that more is needed. We have recently um, applauded uh, the introduction of legislation known as the Hong Kong Safe Harbor Act, which would grant an expedited approval for folks fleeing from China, specifically in Hong Kong, to uh, come to America and make America a safe haven for folks that are fleeing that terribly oppressive regime. Yeah, and praise the Lord uh, for that, because, you know, any anybody who's been paying attention to basically the destruction of democracy in Hong Kong uh, by the oppressive Chinese government, it's a tragedy, and it is something that is terrible. Like, it's, it, it's disgusting. And honestly, China being a country that is just ruled by a regime of oppressive, I, I want to say autocrats, communists uh, that just absolutely uh, you know strip away basic freedoms for their people and keep them living in fear of their government. It is it is really really sad. And so for this opportunity for the United States to uh, welcome those uh, who have been subjected to such abuse uh, at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party is uh, is really tremendous. And I'm grateful for the ERLC's advocacy on this issue. Josh, that's a perfect segue actually into our next story uh, since you mentioned uh, autocrats. And folks who have been watching the Olympics may have heard about this. So this comes from CBS News. So Belarusian Olympic sprinter Kristina Sumanskaya, who feared for her safety at home after criticizing her coaches on social media, flew into Warsaw on Wednesday night on a humanitarian visa after leaving the Tokyo Olympics, a Polish diplomat confirmed. The drama began after her criticism of how officials were managing her team, and it set off a massive backlash in state-run media in Belarus, where the government has relentlessly stifled any criticism. The runner said on Instagram that she was put in the 4x400 relay, even though she had never raced in the event. She was then barred from competing in the 200 meters. The standoff has drawn more attention to Belarus's uncompromising authoritarian government. When the country was rocked by months of protests following a presidential election that the opposition in the West saw as rigged, authorities responded by arresting some 35,000 people and beating thousands of demonstrators. President Alexander Lukashenko, who led the Belarus National Olympic Committee for almost a quarter of a century before handing over the job to his son in February, has a keen interest in sports, seeing it as a key element of national prestige. And his government has shown it is willing to go to extreme lengths to target its critics. In May, Belarus authorities diverted a European passenger jet to the capital of Minsk, where they arrested an opposition journalist on board. So uh, needless to, to say, I mean, we're very happy uh, that this runner was, was able to find safe harbor uh, in somewhere other than Belarus. Uh, she is worried about her parents who remain in the country, but her husband was able to flee. Uh, but needless to say, these these types of Eastern European countries uh, with these sort of strongman uh, autocrats or wannabe autocrats, uh, they're, they're not exactly a bulwark of liberty that we need to be looking to. 
That's a really good point, Brent. And it's honestly uh, important that right now, you know, we're watching the Olympics and paying attention to everything that's happening. And obviously this story centers on the Olympics, but uh, that's one of the reasons that something like the Olympic event is so important because it does bring all of these countries together and it does expose people to what it's like in different parts of the world. And so for us uh, as Americans, it reminds us uh, to be grateful for the liberties uh, and freedoms that we enjoy. And it reminds us the fact that the world isn't free. There are still many places in the world where people's basic human rights are routinely violated by their government and that they are oppressed at the hands of the governments that are supposed to serve them as people. And so uh, this story is one that highlights that. And honestly, this has been a, this is not the first time that we've seen this happen, even in the history of the Olympics. And so as an American who thinks, when I think about America, I think about freedom. This just grieves me to know that, that there are still people who are living in that kind of oppression. Okay. And finally, while we're on the Olympics, we talked about Simone Biles' sudden withdrawal from the gymnastics competitions over the last week. Well, there's a little bit more to the story that's been revealed. CBS News is reporting this, that gymnastics star Simone Biles revealed Tuesday that her aunt died unexpectedly during the Tokyo Olympic Games. Biles, who returned to competition after a week off due to mental health concerns, won a bronze medal on the balance beam on Tuesday. During a press conference afterward, the 24-year-old told reporters about the loss of her aunt on her father's side. Quote, at the end of the day, people don't understand what we are going through, she said. Two days ago, I woke up and my aunt unexpectedly passed, and it wasn't any easier being here at the Olympic Games. This, I just thought, was a good reminder of something I think I mentioned last week. These athletes, they're real people. They are not uh, here for our entertainment. They They are... Uh, in the midst of a important competition, um, but they are going through so many things, and uh, it, it's always best to it, when something like this arises. Just just give that person some grace, and and certainly Simone Biles needed that in that moment. She needs our prayers uh, because obviously her family's going through dealing with this loss. I can't imagine bearing the pressure of the Olympics and competing and what's expected of me in the midst of such personal loss. On another note, props to her for being willing to get back in into the game, particularly to be willing to do the balance beam, which is terrifying to me. She doesn't have to do a bunch of the twists that we talked about last week, the twisties, but still, it's terrifying. Balance beam, I would most certainly fall off, and she pulled out a bronze, so I think that's amazing. Yeah, I just want to echo the fact that I think I think what you guys both said is great. Brent, your part about how this is a real person uh, and that these these people who are where you're watching compete and represent our country, they're real people. Uh, also, Lindsay, I have not stopped laughing about the tipsies. Uh, that was just such a funny thing. And if you don't know what we're talking about, again, last week's episode, real good stuff. So anyway, thanks for that. All right. So Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Brent, you're going to go first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, this week we were all uh, moved when we saw the interview that Congresswoman Julia Letlow uh, from Louisiana, uh, she's a Republican that represents uh, north and, and c- central parts of Louisiana. She came to Congress uh, following in the footsteps of uh, her husband, who passed away due to COVID. And she has this just really gripping story about how they were they were so excited uh, for the, the blessing that is the COVID vaccines to be coming. 
and um, he ended up getting COVID and he passed away two weeks uh, before he would have been eligible to receive it. And she just talks about their walk um, through those those final few weeks and um, how she is now carrying on not only her husband's political legacy, but carrying on leading the family for it. They've got young children. And um, it was just a very mu- moving interview. It was um, incredibly well done by uh, CBS and the CBS This Morning crew. And um, it's, it was just a vivid reminder that the vaccines are a blessing and you should seek out information about them and um, hopefully get vaccinated because this is an awful disease that is still ravaging our nation. And so I'm, I'm just so thankful that this, this congresswoman uh, sat down and, and shared this story uh, with the rest of us. Warning, it will slay you when you watch it, particularly if you're in a similar season of life as this family. And she shared how they would say the blessing from number six over their children, the Lord bless you and keep you. And then she said that over her husband before he died. And it just got me right in the heart because my husband says that blessing over our children and his mom said that blessing over he and his brother. So it just, oh, it hit it hit close to home and I'm thankful for her trust in the Lord. But I wish she never would have had to go through it. Yeah, also watch that video. And Lindsay, you're not kidding. It is a really, really difficult thing to watch. But it is so, so good. And I'm glad she did it because it's a message that people need to hear. Um, speaking about things and people need to hear, Lindsay, what what is your lunchroom this week? Well, I'm not sure that's such a good segue. I wouldn't say people need to hear it. It's just we're in the lunchroom, so I'm going to talk about it, (laughs) whether you want to hear it or not, which is pretty much how our lunchroom goes. I don't have an actual source or resource to share with you. I was just going to share that uh, because maybe somebody needs to hear it too and be encouraged. I have just found myself spending way too much time, in particular on Twitter, just my default when it when i have a quiet moment is to just scroll and particularly in the midst of the the delta variant i'm one of those corona bros i guess i would tend to lean toward the being a little worried more worried about corona than toward the other I end i think you i think you're exaggerating the lean it's the lean is more like a dive head first into the uh cor- the waters of the corona fear wait so what am i you're, you're, Are you telling me that I'm underestimating myself or overestimating you're myself? Under, you're underestimating how much you are, a, in fact, a corona, bro. I, I do not live in whatever. <laughs> I don't live in fear of it, but uh, for the most part, I think. You take it seriously, Lindsay. I take it seriously, as and I think I'm, I'm everybody thankful, should. Public service I'm announcement. That you, I'm thankful that you do so. <laughs> Listen, I got to protect my kids, people, and I will be like a mama bear. Anyway. And I just noticed how I was feeding off of controversy too and how it is. It's those dopamine hits when you get more information. And so I just, I needed a social media slowdown. It's only been a few days, but I only allow myself to go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, morning, noon, and night, scroll through. And it has already been such a breath of fresh air. It's been good for my soul. It's 
brought some needed peace and trusting the Lord for wisdom and not what these other voices are saying, even though I'm thankful for some of them. So let this be an encouragement to to those of you, I'm looking at you, Josh, who are on Twitter way too much to back down a little bit and make some room for quiet in your soul. Well, that is a that's definitely a needed word, uh, Lindsay, on the quiet for your soul. And look, I'm I'm looking for it. I just think it's going to come a couple years from now, probably. So that's what you get for calling me a Corona bro, Lindsay. He's got to know what his best friends are saying. That's true. It, without Twitter, <laughs> Josh would not have best friends. So I guess he still it's, has to be on Twitter. His his uh, you know his his three or four thousand best friends. Like he's got to know what they're saying, Lindsay. You can't. I feel like Josh Lyman right now from the West Wing, which we haven't had a good West Wing reference in a while, so it's time to bring that back. But, um, you know, he's, Josh has this famous quote. He's like, uh, he's like, the people are talking, and I need to know what they're saying. Anyway, that's how I feel right now, or at least how yes. you guys are making me feel like I feel. <laughs> so I mentioned at the top of the show that I'm back in North Carolina this week, and honestly, the, the lunchroom would literally just be, man, just to express my gratitude for how incredible uh, – my, my family is, and it is a tremendous blessing from the Lord. Uh, my grandfather was just the very best guy. He was somebody who, he was actually my dad's stepdad. And so for him to have entered our family long before I was born, and I'm the oldest cousin, and to have lived such an incredible life of, of generosity, of passion, of uh, just being a Christ-like person who looked for opportunities all the time to point people to the hope that he had in Jesus. Oh, man, just being able to celebrate that life and, and with uh, a family full of people that loved him uh, so deeply has been just really, really amazing. And honestly, because I've got all that going on, I'm totally in my feelings uh, this week because uh, for me, and this is my lunch room this week is just to tease something. Uh, for next week, there is a lot of transition happening at the URLC. And uh, while I actually thought for a long time that I was going to uh, be with the URLC for the long haul, uh, some some stuff that has transitioned in our organization and other transitions that have come along for me personally, I am wrapping up my time here uh, at the URLC. And so I'm looking forward to sharing more about that uh, with you next week. But I have, uh, so, so next week will be my final episode. So this is like the penultimate episode. And so I just wanted to give that that teaser. You know, I don't know how many of you would, you know, care about me, but I didn't want to leave you hanging by just showing up on the last episode and being like, well, bye. Uh, so that's my lunchroom this week. Just kind of reflecting on uh, I've been full time at the URLC for just over four years and it has been absolutely incredible. And I'll share more about that next week. You're killing me softly, Josh. Well, <laughs> there is this song uh, that that I see in a bunch of Instagram reels that is like, um, the lyrics are, and I'm not going to sing like Lindsay, it's like, uh, hey, how you doing? Well, I'm doing just fine. But the second line is, I lied, I'm dying inside. And that is how I feel right now. <laughs> I'm dying mm. inside. Which is so appropriate. Josh Wester, a man of very intense emotions. <laughs> Got big feelings. Yes. Got now that big is feelings, an understatement. Josh. That's why we're thankful that for you. That is an you. understatement. <laughs> well, and and just so we don't create any unnecessary intrigue, uh, Josh, this is this is actually a very uh, exciting professional development that that we're all very very excited for you on your behalf and and alongside you. And the great news is you're you're not going to be going that far, and so we're just we're really thankful for you, bro. And your intense, uh, what did she say? Your your intense passions or your intense emotions? Uh, my very big feelings. So 
Man, well, uh, love both of you guys and have absolutely loved doing this podcast, but I'm not going to you know, do the final episode now because it's not till next week. So for now, uh, we just want to say thanks so much uh, for listening every single week. Uh, it is really a joy to hang out with you and run down uh, the weekend culture and what's going on at the URLC and just kind of welcome you into our lives. We love hearing the feedback from you, and it's been great to uh, share this uh, all along the way since we started this thing. Well, you know, at the very beginning of COVID, we were a couple episodes ahead of the COVID curve coming and changing changing all of our lives in a really serious way. And so uh, we just want to say thanks uh, for listening. Thanks for helping share uh, the podcast on social media. Thanks for those who have gone into the podcast app and left the rating or review. And um, we also want to thank our team. So I don't do this every time and I should, uh, but Megan Smith Mayo, who is our kind of technical producer who helps do make the, make the show happen every single week. Uh, Marie Delf, who lends us uh, actual expert support, uh, making sure the podcast ends up in your podcast apps. And of course, Mark Owens, who is just, you know, indispensable and unbelievably talented to actually make the podcast make sense uh, every single week. So we are grateful for them and grateful for you. And we look forward to being back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.